This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual podcasters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com. This podcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this podcast is intended to be considered as advice. Hello, I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. Our guest today is capital market strategist, Guy Hazelman. Guy has 30 years of diverse capital markets experience, including 14 years building and managing assets at two well-known macro hedge funds. During his career, Guy traded numerous capital market securities, and he has developed risk management strategies and trading procedure guidelines. Previously, he was Director of Capital Market Strategy at Scotiabank GBM, where he incorporated a global macro approach. He has been published in academic journals, newspapers, and has written countless strategy pieces. He has appeared on various TV and radio programs such as BNN and Bloomberg. He is a guest lecturer at several universities, including his alma mater, the University of Delaware Lerner College of Business and Economics, and is a frequent panelist at industry conferences. In addition, Guy was a gubernatorial appointee to the New Jersey State Investment Council and was appointed by the chair to the Investment Policy, Executive, and Nomination Subcommittees. Guy is a past president and member of the Board of Governors of the New York Money Marketeers. Thank you so much. We're truly honored to have you. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Over the years that we've been sharing your your missives and your commentary, Guy, with our audience uh, at AdvisorAnalyst.com, We've all learned a great deal from the insights you've shared with us. You've truly been one of the most incisive sources of intel on everything to do with capital markets, credit, and treasuries. I would hazard a guess and say that the bond and credit markets, which are the most important part of the financial markets and by far the largest part of the market, oddly are the part of the market that a majority of advisors uh, have yet to understand more of. And if we can provide more insight on this aspect of markets, it will have done more advisors a service of helping them understand the big picture better. We couldn't think of anyone more qualified to talk about what's going on in the context of the economic, market, and social shock that the COVID-19 pandemic is causing. You've always been there to reveal what was going on behind the curtain and to provide revealing perspective. Um, First of all, Guy, how are you and your family doing in New Jersey? And how are things there? My family's doing very well. My boys who aren't in school, some kids would be getting cabin fever. Uh, My oldest son's a musician, so he locks up in his room and plays music all day. And my other son socializes through kind of his video games and whatnot, and we're still able to get exercise. So knock on wood, my family is doing very, very well. Um, But there is tremendous hardship out there all around me with friends and others. Um, people who have symptoms who either will not get tested or can't get tested. So it's very, very hard to have uh, a a sense as to, you know, how bad it is or, and, and, you know, you have people in the news talking both ends of it, right? We're overreacting or we're not, you know, uh, reacting enough. Yeah, it seems to be, you know, between a pillar and a post right now in terms of, of uh, sort of gauging how things are going to be. The earth is still moving. You know, the big questions, you know, when do we get out of this? How long will it take? Uh, because depending on how long 
this disruption lasts, you know, it will affect our lives differently on on so many different uh, fronts. And you know, whether that's economically, financially, socially, you know, life is is set to change in uh, in so many ways for for all of us. What will a post-COVID world actually look like? And those who are talking, we'll probably talk about this on our podcast. A lot are calling for the V-shaped recovery and built-up demand, and we'll just get back to business as normal. But I think there are both internal, meaning domestic, as well as international ramifications, certainly social ramifications, that I think are pretty widespread. Um, and I'm going to write a paper about that. I haven't done it yet, but it's uh, it's in my head somewhere. Well, we certainly have lots of time to do a lot of things that we've been wanting to do or that we mean to do these days. I mean, particularly uh, professionally or around the house, <laughs> there's so many things to do. Uh, I'm really happy to hear that you and your family are, are doing well. You're in a part of the U.S. where there's certainly been a surge of spread of the uh, epidemic. And um, so I imagine at the same time as, as you're all doing well, it must be also pretty scary as well. Yeah, and I think what, you know, the, part of the epicenter here is New Jersey is actually the most densely populated state in the union. And we all know that yeah. about New York, but a lot of people don't know that about New Jersey as well. And that can be really tough to control, even if people are self-quarantining, given how close proximity they live with each other. You know, it's not hard to imagine that, that given where you are, it's been hard to contain, you know, especially given that people are walking around without knowing that they're sick. And, and Insidious is yeah. that you can have it and not have any symptoms. So it's a really unique kind of virus that's, that is difficult. And, and clearly they've finally woken up to that fact. And... That's why basically the entire planet is shut down for business, which is just pretty extraordinary. Yeah, and the word is unprecedented. You know, I hate I hate to say the word unprecedented seems to be becoming one of the most overused words, but it really is unprecedented. There's there's a let's talk about the policy response. We know that we know what the government we know what government's healthcare response has been to the virus itself so far. Uh, we're getting you know you you need only turn on TV to find out. So. Let's talk about the economic response, the Fed's response. Has that has that been effective? And we've had rate cuts equaling one and a half percent. Massive bond purchases are recommencing, and a two trillion dollar economic rescue. How would you rate that? Do you think that's it, or is this just uh, simply Act One? Right. You you use two words there that are um, pretty interesting. You used effective and enough. And um, let me let me explain that by first telling a quick story. I have a friend, a, a wonderful friend, brilliant guy who likes to say government is capable of two things and only two things, nothing and overreacting. And the speed and scope of this virus was truly, truly extraordinary. They should have seen it coming a little bit better, at least a couple weeks given the speed and what was happening and at first they did nothing so then the second thing is now that they've reacted both the fed and the treasury and they're both doing separate things which we can talk about is it enough and is it effective well i would say the following is that i wouldn't believe the absolute numbers because the numbers are there's plenty of double counting there's plenty of okay there's a facility that's a trillion like commercial paper 
but they can only buy A1P1, and the amount of the entire universe of A1P1 is about 500 billion. So you know, the other 500 billion is just kind of a made-up number. So you have that, and then. Is it really going to where it really needs to go? And and I would say that the the government needs to look as if they're doing something, and they need to look as if they're doing enough and something tremendous and the biggest ever and this and that. But they don't know what they're reacting to, and that's the problem. The government is trying to react in an enormous way, but they don't even know the problem that they're trying to solve. Now they do on the healthcare side. But right now we're talking about two things: the economy and the markets. And for the markets, the Fed's role, like in 2008, and they're very different crises back then and today. But the Fed's role is to make sure that markets operate and market, and and that there's enough liquidity in the system to keep them operating. And they have the ability to do that. But I think they missed a huge opportunity here. And again, providing that Fed put, this was their chance to actually back away. Now, I'm not saying let markets collapse and fall apart. I'm saying part of the problem of why the markets are going to react with this massive volatility is the monetary monstrosity of what they've done for the last ten years, allowing everybody to believe in that put to. Belong to speculate, to issue debt, to buy back shares, to move into passive, which basically is a blatant disregard for valuations, and so they created an everything bubble. Well, this is the time to walk away from that. That zombie companies and bad businesses should fail. Price discovery is a good thing as long as you can keep the liquidity there. You don't, you know, if some companies are, you know, you know, recklessly used all their free cash flow to buy back shares. Well, if the government's going to now have to bail them out, maybe they should either allow them to operate through bankruptcy, or they should take them over or give them a bailout that puts. Strong restrictions on them, including the government getting lots of warrants and things like that. So, the reason why I point that out is one: there's a couple things about the stimulus. One, how they do it really matters, or you're going to make Occupy Wall Street look like a walk in the park. Social unrest was already.、Um, what do I want to call it?、Uh, there were divisions everywhere. Okay.、Um, yeah. The you know so the social fabric of the United States was already at a very precarious level. You start bailing out companies, and you got the haves and the have-nots, and the elite and the poor, and you don't really help Wall Street.、Um, you're going to have tremendous social unrest. So I think the moral hazard issue is they're going down that road all over again. And、um, I know there's a long answer, but it's an important one.、Um, the Fed has.、Um, Has had a time inconsistency problem the whole time. In other words, everything they've done, they've tried to make things better today, for the sake of the. But they've risked the sake of the. You know, it's at the sake of the future, mortgaging our kids' future by causing this massive, massive indebtedness. And so you're trying to kind of get out of this right now. It's probably the worst time in 50 years, and by that I mean. The level of global indebtedness. A lot of the stimulus is to provide more loans and more debt, 
So you really do need to try to fix the problems and the solution and, and, and give the money to where it's needed. The second is demographics. During the 2001 market debacle, you know, 2001 and 2002, the average age of the baby boomer was 45 years old. Okay, fine. They can go in and finally buy the dip and get all aggressive. During the 2008 crisis, they're 54. Today, the baby boom generation is 65. And if you look at demographics in Germany and Japan and China and all these other, it's it's even worse. And so that leads to the paper that I'm you know writing. One of those uh, ideas is to what does the geopolitical situation have will look like when you know the other end of this will be deglobalization from globalization and at a and the countries that have really bad demographics are going to have um an even worse time trying to pull themselves out of this it's uh you know just listening to you it, it's it's interesting i mean it's it's ironic because you know it, it it seems like you know these are all these are all all of the things that that the last crisis gave rise to uh you know this this gigantic a government debt that we've amassed over the last 10 years, rescuing the economy from the last financial crisis. These are all the things that gave rise to populism, the election of the current president, the, the rancor in, in the public, the division of classes, the wealth gap, you know, all the things that the Trump campaign campaigned for that, you know, we're going to bring American jobs back. We're going to take back what's ours. It's ironic that all those things, they're coming to pass. Or now, now what, what seemed like such an unbelievable thing is now believable. You know, for example, the U.S. and China were in this trade war, uh, exchanging threats and, and, and exchanging tariff regulations and, and, and you know, seeming that, that they were going to come to some resolution, but never actually getting there. And then this happened. And now, now there really has been a break in, in supply chains. You know, the reality is here. And we're faced with this decision where we're now manufacturing, for example, will most likely will have to come back to the U.S. in order to to remedy some of the problems that have been exposed by the epidemic. You, you, you make some really excellent points. And it, two things come to mind is one that most crises have a reaction by federal government, the Fed, fiscal maneuvers, Congress, regulators, whoever it may be. And what they do is they put all of these pieces in place to make sure that crisis never happens again. But what they do is they end up sowing the seeds for the next crises because it's ill-conceived a lot of the time. And there are the unintended consequences and second order effects of what their extreme overreach, my friend Norm, my, the extreme overreaction. Mm-hmm. And so you're exactly right, right? We fixed the 2008 debt crisis and replaced it with a Fed put and even more, you know, it was a debt crisis and we have even more debt. The thing that you were saying about, um, you know, this crisis and what it did is it really exposed exposed the frailties of our system's dependencies. Well, you know, the globalization and the theory of comparative advantage. Think about what globalization did. It really, over the last 30 years, it was driven from modern technologies that allowed us to access 
further away places to take advantage of cheap labor. And those efficiencies were unbelievable. And that's kind of what, you know, low interest rates and Fed policy actually helped turbocharge that. That's the one sort of good thing about it. But they but the bad thing about it is the Fed did not understand why inflation never went up when real interest rates stayed low. It was like the too much of everything. But technologies advanced, the world shrank, globalization um, did more to lift the human condition than and, and lift uh, shrink poverty levels and lift people from subsistence living into the lower middle class and things like that. The benefits were absolutely extraordinary and when people feel taken care of and um, they can feed their families social unrest stays low governments are more stable it's been a very low war period it doesn't seem that way in the Middle East but that they've been warring for thousands of years but now what you're having is that you have two things here you have that kind of globalized world order and that's that's being exposed through fears and uncertainty and kind of um, you questioning your government's ability to 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 handle this and then you have the 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 frailties of the house of cards and the markets that were created by the fed and this illusion of prosperity which was really just driven by debt and buybacks and uh, the economic fundamentals that, that, that did not justify market valuations, the push into passive, that type of herd mentality, uh, which is so dangerous. So again, back to the paper I have yet to write that I'm going to write, it talks a little bit about this deglobalization and what is that going to look like? So that's the that's deglobalization is the backlash from this crisis, which because this crisis has exposed our weaknesses to trade, we're in a situation where because China had to cut us off first, we realized how dependent we were on them for manufacturing. We realized how dependent we were on them for for all of the components and 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 uh, low end and high end goods that they manufacture for us there that, that if we went on long enough, our shelves would become empty because we, we've become so accustomed to buying uh, inexpensive goods from abroad, from emerging markets, not just China, but but China's the big one, of course. And so we really had it handed to us, didn't we, of uh, what happens when the biggest supplier of manufactured goods in the world suddenly stops. And now because of the lag uh, and because of the pandemic, it has exposed our, our weaknesses even further, has it not? I mean, now they're coming back online because their measures were were far more stringent about social distancing, sh- shutting down their economy, shutting down their manufacturing for a little while. And now they're coming back on stream and we're, we're, we're offline. It's very revealing of how things are organized. It's really interesting, the points that you're bringing up and talking about trade with China and that relationship and you use word protectionism and there's a lack of trust there and all these things. I'm going to take kind of what you're saying and kind of grow it to kind of a bigger, uh, bigger thought. And that is, you know, global trade and just how interconnected and intertwined it all is. Now, you say China's coming back online. 
maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I don't trust anything out of China. True. I, I, I agreed. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Agreed. I mean, we really don't know. You don't know, and if you just be posturing. Exactly. If if you have a closed parts plant in China, well, that could close、uh, a manufacturing plant in Yugoslavia because of the interconnections. And、um, you know the example I used in my last paper about how these World War II planes in Germany sat idle, and it wasn't until the war was over that people realized why these perfectly good planes weren't flying. It's because we had bombed a ball bearings plant. Well, the plane doesn't work if you don't have the ball bearings, and it's a perfect example of the thousands of parts that'll go into a Ford truck, let's say. So the world really inter intertwined and interconnected, and the the world order in terms of going from globalization to deglobalization had started before Corona hit. Corona's just sort of. Uh, exposing those frailties, and certainly, as you say, you know our dependence on Chinese manufacturing, whether it's pharmaceutical drugs, you know,、um, and and key kind of things to keep your population kind of safe. That's the good side of it. At the at the you know the other end, that manufacturing in a lot of areas will come back to the places who can actually do it. In other words, the United States. Other people、um, are going to have, I think, regional kind of like trade issues. So I'm not saying global trade is going to stop. I'm just saying the shape of it is going to change. But world order really started to kind of get a little more precarious and change. And what I mean by world order is, you had this kind of Bretton Woods. You know, agreement after World War II, and the U.S. becomes the world's reserve currency, and kind of what does that mean? And it's sort of, you know, the U.S. was a, a major superpower, and what it means is, hey, you know, we're going to go into NATO. Hey, Japan, don't build your military back up. We'll protect you. And so the U.S. was a was a kind of the global policeman and a protector. And we certainly have these weird sort of partnerships with, let's say, Saudi Arabia. That is this brutal、uh, regime,、uh, which I won't get into. But why? And it was because we needed oil. We were such a consumer. But the shale revolution—that's why they need to save oil. But to save oil, maybe we'll go down that road. But shale meant that all of a sudden we were no longer an importer of oil, but an actually a net exporter. Which meant what? We kind of don't need the rest of the world. The U.S. is in a unique position where we can grow our own food, we can build our own product. We now have we're energy sufficient. That means, and that was happening before COVID. So what this means is the world is going to get a far, far more dangerous place in a COVID world, especially when these countries become more and more desperate. I mean, shipping lanes are going to become. Uh, a little bit more dangerous because the U.S. the U.S. has fewer troops now overseas than at any point in the last fifty years. I don't think people knew that. So it's sort of like there's no stomach to be the world's policeman. And as we pull back, it means that desperate people or desperate countries do desperate things. So all these old wars and borders that were handed out during the different wars. 
you know, sometimes the tail here is going to start wagging the dog. And the, I think a lot of not just internal social unrest is going to happen from exposing how your governments have failed you in certain countries. But also certain countries are going to purposely get a little bit more uh, antagonistic and whatnot. One thought that I had was Trump never expected to win the election. He's a bit of a brinksman and he likes to he likes to push and push and push until he gets his leverage, until things turn back in his favor. And and so all this jockeying over the last couple of years with China, which this relates to you saying that that, you know, the 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 sort of end of globalization was already underway, that this this situation that we're in now, which has revealed the cracks, the White House never expected to be in a situation where trade is broken completely. Like it reminds me also of Warren Buffett's, you know, classic quote, which is that when the tide goes out, that's when you see who's not wearing any pants. And in a way, you know, we're sort of in a situation where it feels like that. All of these decisions have been made over the last decade. You know, we've we've been we've been led into this belief that the Fed will rescue us every time. Maybe this is a good segue. The Fed will rescue us. The Fed put um, a lot of people in the business seem to think that the Fed stepped in to rescue the stock market or that that's what the fed does the fed rescues the stock market with rate cuts and quantitative easing and 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 stimulus and easy money and cheap money um but the fed really isn't interested in the stock market is it i mean it really like what precipitated precipitated the rate cut last fall long before covid ever came on the scene was the uh, the repo situation in credit markets and what precipitated the Fed's intervention a month ago. Many participants in the market believe that the Fed cut rates and restarted its massive bond purchases in order to save the stock market. But that's not the case, is it? Let me say this about the Fed. Um, I, I've been warning since 2012 that this is not going to end well for the Fed because they don't have an exit strategy and an end game. And of course, then the question becomes, well, when isn't, isn't, isn't it going to end well, because it's all about timing, because people all had fear of missing out risk and don't fight the Fed and all those little taglines, and they're right. And I thought, so my answer to them was, when the Fed starts shrinking their balance sheet and real rates go negative, I mean, sorry, real rates are negative, when real rates go positive, meaning nominal rates minus inflation is a positive number, it's over. And think about that. The economy can't handle a nominal, a, a real interest rate that's a positive number, even if it's close to zero. People thought I was crazy. And, you know, I was looking for a catalyst because you can't artificially continue to prop up markets. And what happened in, I think it was, I get the year wrong, December of uh, 17 or 18, I think it was 2018. When that interest rate hike at the beginning of the month pushed real interest rates positive, the market lost 20% right. of the low on December 24th when the Fed came out and sort of, you know, got cold feet. And within a month, they cut three times. So when you say the Fed doesn't care about the stock market, I don't know if that's right. I think maybe, I don't know. Um, I would say this. If the stock market loses 20% in three weeks, they care. If the stock market loses 20% over 10 months, they probably don't care. Right. 
So I think the speed matters. Um, the other thing that you said, you know, trying to think. What, wasn't 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 the Fed's wasn't the Fed's uh, reaction most most recently to the seizure in the bond market? You know, most recently they had the you know, but the the whole repo thing was a creation of their own making. So they screwed it up. And again, it's an unintended consequences of the fact as to how they've sort of changed the plumbing and the system with their corridor system and their control of interest rates and the fact that, you know, interbank lending is now different and things like that. Um, but let's remember what the Fed's function was. I mean, let's go back to 1913. It was it was created really to stop a run on banks, which meant if there was a liquidity issue, they would become the lender of last resort, last resort, not first resort. And they would grant a loan at a penalty rate of interest against very high quality collateral. That's it. There's no other role of the Fed. So if you read Roger Lowenstein's book, which is a fabulous book called America's Bank, because back then everything was kind of documented and in writing, mm. the amount of detail in this book is truly, truly extraordinary. And he goes into the argument for and against creating, quote unquote, America's Bank. The subcategory of the book is the epic struggle to create the central bank. And those who argued against doing it were worried about strategy drift and them getting too much power. Basically, everything they're doing today is in that book from 1913, worried about them being unaccountable and too powerful. And they keep creating these boom to bust cycles because there is a difference between theory and practice. And again, back to that time inconsistency that I talk about, they're trying to micromanage a $22 trillion complex global economy with the stupidity of trying to create a 2% inflation rate. Now, that's a whole nother, I mean, that's just, you know, they just came up with that target. I don't know what year they did, but they go, oh, let's come up with that. Because all of them, when I have lunch with these FLMC guys, they say, yeah, that's one thing we can control is inflation. Really? Well, inflation's been one and a half to 2% for 10 years, and yet you're conducting this monstrous monetary policy like we're in the middle of a crisis when the economy is just kind of clipping along. You cannot create a tiny bit of inflation. Now, you can debase a currency and create hyperinflation, but you can't micromanage inflation. And they hid behind the eyes. And, and why is inflation a good thing? Think about the rule of 72. Right. If, you know, a 2% inflation target means that the purchasing power of your money will have in 36 years. And then you get the Williams guys who are even crazier saying, ah, well, it undershot for a while. Regression, you know, we'll average it out. So we'll allow it to clip at 3% for a while. Why is that good? I mean, that means that the purchasing power of your money halves in 24 years. And then in another 24 years, it halves again. It's absolute sheer lunacy. Jeff Gundlach from Double Line Capital recently did a webcast and one of the charts that he featured in one of his slides was of the S&P 500 versus the S&P 500 priced in gold. His reasoning for S&P 500 priced in gold is that if you consider that if you if you call gold real money, what you see is that the S&P 500 has never recovered to its 1999 levels. And the reason for that is because of, of the degradation in the value of money in the value of the dollar. Uh, so that was an interesting slide. It, it kind of goes to what you're talking about, which is this, this inflation target of 2%, although it's not 
entirely relative to gold, since we're on the subject of real money. Um, it was interesting to see that comparison of what financial assets are worth, you know, relative to gold. And it, and it brings up bigger questions. I think it's a wonderful chart and an example. But what you should do with this chart like that is is question your portfolio construction over full business cycles, and maybe go back more than 40 years because you go back 40 years and all you've had was a declining interest rate, you know, from the. 20% in 1980 to basically zero. And and so it, it it's sort of misleading when when you only look at kind of recent history and there is recency biases, you know, the people chasing passive versus active, which is what you brought up earlier. I think their lemmings going to go off a cliff and you've already seen that a little bit. I touched on that in my death of the 60/40 portfolio. Um but I think portfolio construction really, truly needs a rethink because what's ended up happening is people don't understand the correlations and they go into equity and then they go into private equity and venture capital and then corporate bonds. And little do they know in a crisis, those are all highly, highly correlated. Correlations right. go one. And then even, you know, as junk bond spreads go up, so junk bond spreads are widening, that's not giving you a safe haven. That's adding to your correlation. So poor <clears throat> you know, if you if you really have a 10 or 20 year horizon, like a lot of your wealth planners are always talking about, oh, you're in it for the long haul, right. you know, keep the course, keep steady. Well, if that's the case, they would build a, a portfolio that does not participate into these big downward deviations. And they wouldn't have, you know, one to two percent gold. They'd probably have 10 to 15 percent gold and they'd have certain vol strategies at certain times. They would have a portfolio that truly acts like a balanced corporate, you know, and, and there have been studies that have tested it over a hundred years, not in the last 20 years. In the last right. 20 years, that's why everybody's going into robo-advising and everybody's worried about beating their benchmarks and their peers. That's lunacy because the benchmarks, why would you want a benchmark? We're in a, we're not even in a normal distributed world anymore. Modern portfolio theory assumes a normal distribution. The digital world means we're in a Pareto curve, which means only a few of the, of the companies are going to have a large set of the market share. Look at Google. I mean, who's the second search engine? Who cares? And you things <laughs> done versus the rest. So people that are going into an index, I believe, are locking themselves into a guaranteed suboptimal return. And it's like I tell my kids, if you strive for mediocrity, you end up with all things mediocre. I just don't know why, you know, because and the reason why people want to do it, and they want to hold the line and never because they never want to say this time is different. They get laughed out of a room. But what I'm, I'm not even saying that I'm saying you need to change as things change. And they get so caught up in these taglines that they forget to actually to actually change because they would like to succeed conventionally. I'm sorry, right. fail conventionally, then succeed unconventionally. And why? Because they're so worried about job security. If I do something different, if I underperform my peers and my benchmarks, then I'm going to get fired. And the problem with that is not everybody can have the optimal portfolio all at the same time. And that's what the robo-advising and the pension funds who use kind of these uh, capital markets assumption, they all have the same asset allocation 
model. And that type of herd mentality is going to make a lot of them significantly uh, underperform and, and cause bigger damage than a portfolio that is really, really constructed in a much more intelligent manner. Some of the uh, better pension funds, like for example, in Canada, we have the Canada Pension Plan, CPP, which is extremely well managed. Um, and it's a great example of, of a portfolio that has many dimensions in, in terms of correlation, in terms of assets that are, that are not correlated to each other. And I think the problem that advisors have with their clients, I think the problem is that the, while the objectives may be 10, 20, 25, 30 years out for some, you know, whether you're, you're nearing retirement or, or a long way from it, you can say, oh, it's for the long term. We're investing for the long term. We, you know, we're going we're gonna to buy these assets and we're going to hold them for, for as long as we can. But the, as you said, the problem is that, is that if you look at the 60-40 portfolio, even when you start adding uh, some of these other assets in the fixed income category, in the fixed income sleeve, um, it's true that the correlations do all shoot up to one when markets tank. And, and so, Part of the problem of of, of having a, a, an optimal portfolio is that you need to own things that aren't performing or that are underperforming while other parts of your portfolio are performing. So, for example, the last 11 years, it would have been very difficult for an advisor to recommend something, let's say, halfway through you know, you were you were gangbusters if you if you just owned the S and P 500. And how would an advisor midstream, if that's a relevant point, where you know we're halfway through a bull market, I think we should start adding commodities. I think we should start adding currency hedging. I think we should start adding market neutral strategies. I think we should start adding strategies that are going to have a low correlation in the event of a downturn in the equity market or in the event of a downturn in your 60-40 portfolio. Um, how do you do that without taking that career risk where your client, you know, one, two years out after making those decisions says to you, uh, why did we buy those other things? They're doing nothing. Like, why did we, why did we buy something that's down, that's now down 50% while this other part of our, you know, the core part of my portfolio is gangbusters because we own the index or we own, we own an equity portfolio. Why did we buy these other assets that, that are costing me? return and then the advisors really at a at, you know at a loss whereas with pension funds they can make these long decisions 10 15 20 year decisions if they want they're not going to have their their investor client calling up uh, five years in to say why did you do that so yeah <clears throat> so let me separate out pensions funds from financial advisors because the problems are completely different. And while pension funds say they have a 25 to 40 year horizon, in actuality, they're judged on their monthly, quarterly and you know, fiscal year performance. And there's a big inconsistency well. there and nobody's ever happy. Um, but, you know, again, I think the way pension funds are doing it with the herd mentality, the benchmarking and things like that, it's a whole new set of accidents waiting happened and I'm trying to work with some pension funds and and you know my ideas to them are completely radical but they shouldn't be radical they should actually they're, they're logical and so what do I mean by logical well let me go back to your financial planners now it's logical in the sense that what does it take for the financial planner to be a little bit unconventional and it is tricky and I hear what you're saying about the difficult position that the financial planners are in it requires lots of education, 
and it requires lots of communication and it requires trust because for example i have a friend out in california he is a brilliant financial planner he gets it he's really smart and he got conservative probably 2 years ago because he saw this bubble everything basically said to himself he's a fiduciary right you have to say i'm trying to maximize return per unit of risk whereas everybody else is almost trying to maximize return and they're forgetting about risk that's the problem the fed put the fed put makes you not worry about because that's the problem with what's happening it's sort of like profits are pr- are privatized and losses are socialized that's the problem with bailouts right that was occupy wall street's problem that's why this bailout now needs to be very very careful as to how they handle it yeah let me get back to my friend in california who lost a bunch of clients because he was setting up a better constructed portfolio and what do i mean by better constructed well he was worried about the everything bubble he's a good fiduciary you need to yes maximize return but you need to do it per unit of risk and he was not being compensated for the risk in the portfolio whereas others were still worried about missing the upside because they didn't they thought they didn't need to worry about risk because the fed put was going to take care of the risk for you and that's irrational that's uh and i feel bad for him because he was actually doing the right thing and yet lost and, and lost clients to do it now what you find is most individuals say that they want to make a lot of money but how good they feel when they make a lot of money is not nearly as high as how bad they feel when they lose money so there's right. another difficulty for the financial planner when you lose money your clients really really punish you a lot more than when you make money because you know if you do well it's never enough why can't you do any better and if you lose money how did you do that to me so i think financial planners do need to err on the side of that kind of better portfolio even if it means they underperform a little bit and this whole idea of a 60/40 portfolio i would encourage them to read that paper that i wrote and it back to what you said about how do you go that was a, that was a great paper by the way oh thank you very much i i appreciate that but i think it was supposed to like a lot of things i write people don't always have to agree with it but but what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to point out something that people aren't talking about because you need to adapt and constantly you know change the way that you're thinking about things and certainly a 60/40 portfolio which has served people beautifully for the last 40 years um needs to be called in the question is it still practical and the answer is not you can adjust a portfolio and what did you talk about earlier when we were talking about correlations it's yes there are plenty of ways to find non-correlated sources of idiosyncratic risk those with like a binary outcome you need to be a little more creative but finance has allowed you to be more creative because 30 years mm-hmm. ago you weren't able to invest in a lot of these really esoteric areas and markets and now the finance has gotten so innovative that you actually can and i think the fact that portfolios are not really doing the homework to construct themselves better is just because we've gotten lazy and we've gotten into kind of memorizing those taglines you're a long-term investor by the dip don't change your portfolio don't do this and and 
And that's gotten to the point where, you know, everything is changing now and you need to adapt and change with it. The pandemic has exposed that as well. The idea that seems to be pervasive right now across uh, financial media is is still, you know, we're going to have a V-shaped bounce. We're going to have, is it going to be a V-shaped recovery or a U-shaped recovery? Um, I mean, what if it's neither? What if, what if, what if this, this situation takes a lot longer than anyone uh, expected to resolve itself? It, it reminds me of the actual quote, pardon me, that a bear market can last a lot longer than you imagine. And market you, can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. I mean, it's very similar. That's the one. That's the one. Yeah. And, you know, along those lines is the reason why people are talking about a V-shaped recovery is I think there's pent up demand because Trump, you know, says it every day. The economy will be back to normal anytime soon. But, you know, when you have an unemployment rate that goes from three and a half to 14 percent and businesses are offline, it takes a long time to actually put things back in place. There is tremendous hardship out of there. So I, I've never believed in the V-shaped recovery. Plus the stimulus, the piping just isn't there to get it to the people who need it and and, and then how it's going to work. And that's going to take time as well. But the other is that, you know, we talked about memorizing taglines. People say, don't fight the Fed. Okay, and now mm-hmm. it's using words like buying a trillion in a week for 10 days and using words like unlimited. Well, unlimited is not unlimited. It's not unlimited because if if we are already at extreme debt levels, and what's the whole argument against fiat money and printing, printing, printing? Supply and demand. You print enough of something, you become the Weimar Republic, Zimbabwe, Venezuela. You debase a currency so much. You know, there's an. I'm going to probably put this in my paper. I just thought of something while I'm talking to you. Is the old Triffin dilemma? I wrote a paper about probably on your website years ago. Yep. Robert Triffin was an economist in the 1960s who was talking about the U.S. as the world's reserve currency means you have to supply enough money to the rest of the world. Well, the only way to do that is you have to run a chronic current account deficit. So, by running a chronic current account deficit is is good in the sense that your reserve currency, international trade can be conducted in dollars. You're giving the world enough dollars and things like that. But on the problem, by constantly printing dollars, you undermined the confidence that you have in the ability of that dollar to maintain its value. So you go, yeah, the, you can always buy treasuries because the Fed has a because the Treasury has a printing press and they can pay you back as opposed to IBM that has a corporate bond and can only pay you back by their earnings. But the question I would then have is, yeah, but what is the purchasing power of the dollar they're paying you back with when you finally get your money back? And it opens up a really interesting conversation. Unlimited does not mean unlimited because again, that's when you get hyperinflation and you run into all kinds of problems. And a deglobalized world means that last year was only the third time in 50 years that global trade actually fell. That was last year before Corona. What do you think it's going to do going forward when you know deglobalization sort of means people are going to retrench, there's going to be less travel, there's going to be less trade, people will need dollars less at a time when we need the kindness of foreigners to be buying the U.S. debt market because we have such a massive, massive 
amount of debt that needs to be rolled over. So yeah, I expect a little bit of deflation initially, right. and you know, our deficits are going to blow out, our debt levels going to go out. But what it means, you know, 18 months from now, is that the that the inflation base that we measured against is going to be very very low. And as we bring manufacturing home, and you disrupt all these supply lane chains that are so in, 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 that are so efficient today, they just become a little bit less efficient, which eats into profit margins. Profit margins for very indebted com uh, companies with underfunded pensions, but it means higher prices is what it means. So I'm looking at kind of stagflation uh, a, a, a ways out, which has a whole new set of problems. Coming back to the subject of, you know, globalization, the rise of China. You know, it started out as a really nifty idea for companies to offshore their manufacturing to China, and when it all began, and you have company A decides, you know, hey, guess what? We can we can move all of our manufacturing to a um, place where labor is one tenth of the cost, and and that that was China. Uh, company B in the same business decides, you know, the only way we can compete. Is to do the same, and then pretty soon they're all doing it, and then everybody's having their goods manufactured in China. And the benefit of that is, is as consumers, we turn around and we say, "Oh well, it's great because now we can buy those same goods for half the price." As consumers, now you know what was ironic about all this populist rhetoric was that we're going to bring the jobs back to the U.S. Is that is that no one mentioned in the rhetoric that the only way that that would be possible is if we'd be willing to pay more for those goods if they're manufactured here. And so, you know, you you can't take something that was once manufactured in China for half the price and bring it back at full price and expect to pay the same price, which is the inflation you're talking about. Three things come to mind. Those those are really good points. Is is one that the labor costs in China have actually risen a lot. So you can actually yeah, so much so, so much so that they're actually that that China is even offshoring to some of its neighbors like Vietnam and Cambodia and you know, you know like next door. So China is in. So I want to. So there's a couple things. Um, let me let me make a comment first on Trump and populist. And you you had talked about it earlier in this podcast about uh, you know how he kind of got elected and whatnot. Part of it was Middle America that strong support base. I remember when I used to talk to people in Canada when he was running, people would be like, "Hey man, I I don't get it." Like. What does America see in Trump? Like, like, what's wrong with you people? Kind of thing. I would get that question a lot. And you, you bring it up. What happened was um, there were a lot of people in middle middle America. Think the manufacturing hub in Ohio and Pennsylvania and Michigan and some of those kind of really key swing states. That when globalization happened and plants went to Canada, Mexico, China, wherever they went, were left behind. And there's so many people in this country that saw the stock market going up and making new highs, and Wall Street getting bailed out. That they felt as if government had left them behind. Government had bailed them. Anybody is better than who we had. No, I don't want Hillary. She's more of the same. No, I don't want、uh, Bush's little brother. I don't need a Bush Clinton dynasty. Both have failed me miserable. And I'm not even making a political statement here. 
I mean, I'm just kind of explaining you right, know, right. why you know Trump was quote unquote a businessman, and I can deal with his foul mouth and and his insults and things like that if he can help me out. Me meaning you know the farmer and the guy who you know used to work at a plant in Ohio that's now closed. And a case in point is why do you think the opioid e- epidemic was so high? It was because a lot of these towns really lost their economic source. And you're right, we never replaced them with anything. We should have re-educated them, retrained them to right. do something, got them involved in a digital computer-based world in some capacity, but we didn't. We left them behind. And and so that's one thing. The, the second is that in this deglobalized world that I'm talking about, if you look at a China, let's look at China and Germany as, as two cases in point. You know, China that has the low-cost manufacturing, Germany that has, you know, the most efficient, well-built uh, manufacturing in the planet, both very, very dependent on exports. Well, what's going to happen when global trade is thinking and people don't want kind of your product or they're taking your product and bringing it back home? Now let's throw, take China and look at the debt levels there. Since 2000, everyone talks about China being the biggest economy in the world and the 800-pound gorilla in the room and this and that. But they've basically, their economy has grown 4x in 20 years. Extraordinary. The only problem is debt has grown 24x. So for every $1 of, of debt that they're going, or, or $6 of debt it takes to get $1 of economic growth. Now you're going to do it at a time when your demographics are terrible and um, you don't have enough domestic demand to, to keep economic activity alive. So what's going to happen with that debt? You can either service it, pay it off, roll it over or default on it. Well, servicing it and paying it off require the efficient cash flows to be able to do that. So that's going to create a whole thing of, and, and then think about like in Germany, the demographics are bad because they fought two wars in the last hundred and odd years. And what that did was it really affected um, their, the, the, the makeup of their population and they don't have a lot of working age men and other people. They're vastly grow and, and when you don't have enough kind of workers and, and you have a lot of retiree, that impacts both consumption and production. Now think about it's affecting your consumption and your production at a time when exports in a retrenching world Right. Um, and all of a sudden you got problems and Germany's the one everyone's looking to to bail out the European Union and I don't think there was ever there wasn't much of a stomach for bailing out Greece in 2000 whatever it was 12 or, or whatever um, and now all of a sudden look at just um, how bad Italy is and, right. and what they're going to do to keep the European Union together so I point all this out that 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 the coronavirus has really deep long-lasting social and geopolitical factors that people need to think about. This again will affect portfolio construction. Do you want to be in an index that I think there are going to be clear winners and clear losers? And through it will allow you to actually build a, a much safer, better portfolio. And business as usual to me is unacceptable for both the pensions as well as the long-term financial planners. Everybody hopes that things resume a normal tack as going back to what they were before COVID. And, you know, it, it's not likely like 
one of the things that that was interesting to contemplate was that a lot of people wanted to to increase their ability to work from home already prior to COVID-19. I mean, just, you know, like, for example, here we are online, able to carry on a conversation face to face and record a podcast. And a lot of people, you know, feel like I could do what I do from home and I'd like to be able to do it more. And there was resistance to that from the workplace. And and now that, you know, we're in this situation, it has become forceful. It's become a necessity. You have to work from home. We might just end up liking it more than commuting, you know, one to two hours a day. We might like it more than, than, <laughs> than, than you know, when you, when, you, when you add up the you know, expense of going to work, uh, that can be also be very high. The change in lifestyle, when, when we do finally get to a turning point, when we do come out of this, there's going to be a substantial portion of workers who decide, I like it, or I've gotten used to it now. Can I stay home? That's just, I mean, I'm just using that as one example, but there's so many ways in which the uh, social dynamic will change with regards to work and how it's done and who there's going to be winners and losers. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about the dramatic changes that'll happen in the markets, uh, certainly in geopolitics, in our behavior. But you bring a good point at the at the micro level, at the individual level. There's there is a lot of good that will come out of this. This isn't the end of the world. This will, you know, it took three years for it to go away in 1918. Who knows? It could be a lot shorter here, but things will open back up, and a lot of good comes of it. My basement's clean. My pantry cabinets are organized. My garage has been cleaned out. I'm spending great time with my kids. Absolutely. And, I don't have to commute for two or three hours a day. I'll, I'll have more energy. I have more time. I might be not only put more time into it because I can do it when I want. I feel as if I, I do it when I want, meaning it might be in hours that are just not nine to five. Um, but it might make me more efficient. Um, but again, if you then magnitude, magnify that on, on a larger generation, back to the portfolio, back to businesses that are winners and that are losers. It's like, what does that mean? Well, when you commute, you take a train and then you grab a cup of coffee at Starbucks and then you go out to lunch at your local. And now all of a sudden, things like that are changing a bit. Um, and you take that and, and move it to bigger and bigger levels to, to help you construct a portfolio overall as to, you know, who are the winners and losers? I mean, you know, you can look at this as saying, hey, this was actually a good thing from, you know, uh, you know, in the long run for a quality of life perspective, potentially. So there, there are plenty of things to be hopeful about, no doubt. Absolutely. I, I, I think I think it's just, you know, maybe the part that's unrealistic is thinking that that things will resume as they once were. And, and that they'll do so quickly. Hopefully, mostly that's true. They'll come back. And, um, but, you know, there are even deeper lessons here. Um, you know, there are teaching lessons for your kids. And I think even for adults, we've gotten too complacent, complacent in the marketplace, complacent with, you know, get, you know, the Beatles song. I woke up, I got out of bed, I dragged a comb across my head. You just sort of started doing things uh, in a routine that's going to be disrupted. Now what we're doing is we're thinking about the conditionality of how food shelves were stocked. 
where does it come from? And when you go to the food store and all of a sudden you see one section that used to be loaded with something completely empty, it's making you kind of appreciate the trucker. It makes you appreciate the producer. Where did it come from? And it's getting us to think more about how um, things function and to be more grateful for the things that, that run a little bit bit smoother. So that's another good aspect, these teaching lessons that I think for ourselves and for our children. What's different this time around from 2008? I think that is a great question. Um, and there are quite a bit of differences. Let's look at 2008 and why a reaction had to happen. We had a debt problem and it was really a financial market problem. This is a health problem. But let me talk about what happened very simply back in 2008. And I don't want to get too complicated, so I'll keep it real simple. There were the interbank lending market completely seized up. It's a little different today because the Fed is sort of the other side of that. The interbank lending was banks used to lend each other monies overnight. If they had excess money, it would be lent to the bank that needed it. It was that simple. It was the Fed funds market that traded in just an extraordinary amount every single day. And the reason why it seized up is that each bank had these special purpose vehicles or SIV, special investment vehicles that they set up and they set them up to try to make more money and they set them up because they were an off balance sheet. So the regulators weren't looking at them. They were like uh, a what they call the bankruptcy remote, but they were fully guaranteed and owned by the banks. And there were billions of these, tens of hundreds of billions of these. The problem and the way it worked was it was a giant carry vehicle. In other words, the banks could earn money by issuing short term commercial paper in the name of the SIV. So they'd have fancy names like Surrey and Sussex and whatever they wanted to call them, like a British bank would name them that. And, um, They'd issue the commercial paper, anywhere from 30 to 90 day commercial paper, and they would take the proceeds of the money and invest in a longer dated floating rate asset. So like a three year floater for CDs, auto loans, uh, student loans, you know, those CDOs and the CLOs that were so infamous. But the problem with it was, is when the commercial paper became due, they would have to issue commercial paper again in order to pay for the securities. So you had a very short-term liability and a long-term asset. And that's the mismatch that allowed them a longer-term asset as a higher yield. So they would earn the difference between the higher yield here and the third. And the reason why I point that out is every bank knew what they had. And all of a sudden you couldn't issue commercial paper in the financial market and everybody was worried about all this CLO and CDO stuff turning to garbage. And so nobody wanted, even though it was guaranteed by the bigger bank, they didn't know if the hundreds of billions of this garbage CDO stuff they had in these SIVs were going to go to zero. And so anyway, no bank would lend to another bank because of what they didn't know. 
it completely froze up. So to get back to your question, what the Fed did was the Fed went in with all this alphabet soup of lending facilities to make sure that the markets would continue to trade. It was a better function for the Fed to come in here and make sure that, you know, they help create the mess again by creating a debt bubble of epic proportion and encouraging this reckless lending and all. That's a whole different subject. But what they did to fix the plumbing problem was actually very, very good back then. So they fixed the plumbing problem. The only problem, again, come 2010, when the markets were operating and functioning, the Fed didn't know when to go out. So they created another one of these, you know, that's the problem. They just don't know when to stop. So the Fed's function, fix the markets, fix the plumbing. Okay. Now, today, what you have is, again, the Fed should be fixing the markets, fixing the plumbing, making sure that things, but they should also be trying to allow some type of price discovery letting bad businesses fail, allowing a bankruptcy for a company that that they can operate out of bankruptcy. So where has it become a systemic risk problem and a Fed put problem? And now you got the Treasury involved trying that, you know, so there's a blurred line between what the Fed and is doing. Now, unlimited doesn't mean unlimited. It just basically means, hey, I'm not going to allow the markets to stop working. Now, that may mean they may work at higher credit spreads and lower equity prices. That's fine. But the difference also is that you can quantify risk. You cannot quantify uncertainty. And you started this podcast by just, you know, making a good point. I can't remember exactly how you said it about COVID, but you don't know how bad it's going to get. The testing is sort of limited. Um, You don't know how long it's going to last. You don't know how quickly the markets are going to get opened. And markets are about the discounted uh, value of future cash flows. Those cash flows are basically zero and non-existent. The longer you stay closed, it goes to the bottom line. So there is a real problem. You can't quantify when things go back online, how quickly they can, and every business will be different. Some can come back on quickly, most can't. And in a globalized world, you sort of need the parts plant to be able to supply your manufacturing plant and all kinds of other things. And because you can't quantify uncertainty, if you're a fiduciary, I kind of uh, beat up people on on Twitter saying V-shaped recovery. Hey, look, we're flattening the curve. Buy the market. Buy the dip. Do that. That's gambling. You basically, this is uncertainty and this is a health issue. You don't know when a vaccine will come. They're saying 12 to 18 months. Uh, you know, that would be great if, if you could whip one out in 12 months. You don't know whether the summer months are going to make this thing go away. You don't know whether it's going to come back in September as soon as the warm weather goes away. There's so much you don't know that markets should be priced on the lower end of valuations, not at the ridiculous valuations we have now. So, yeah, while there's hope in terms of us and, well, you know, the sun will come up and everything's fine, there's an economic issue, there's a social issue, and there's a financial market issue. But this is quite, quite, quite different than 2008 because you knew what you were fixing then. You have no idea what you're, 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 you know, you, you want to keep the plumbing and the financial markets working here, but the solution is a health issue. And in 2008, it was a financial market issue. I think there's concerns about what if we come back too soon? There's so many ancillary concerns, you know, speaking of which, like if you're talking about, you know, for example, the automotive business, um, you know, like if Ford 
was to say, okay, we're going to reopen our plants, we're going to come back online. They're getting their parts from all over the world and they're getting their parts from all over the US as well. And that assumes that everybody that is affiliated with Ford manufacturing comes online all at the same time. Like you're going to have a whole bunch of fits and starts. You're going to have some some states behind other states. You're going to have some countries behind other countries. You're going to have businesses in other parts of the supply chain. They all have to be in sync, don't they? I mean, if they're not in sync, then you have to wait. And that could take a lot longer than people realize. That's exactly why I said I don't think we get a V-shaped recovery. There's not pent up demand that as soon as the economy opens, it goes back to normal. I just don't think that's possible. Um, I think that people are going to consume less. I think people are going to save more. It was a wake-up call for having a rainy day fund. I think uh, companies are going to want to operate with fewer and fewer employees. Um, And then in terms of the businesses and just getting back up and operating, you explained beautifully exactly why for many of them that's that's quite, you know, difficult uh, to do. Yeah, it's going to take time to rehire people, to bring them back to the workforce. It's going to, I mean, some people might never come back. You made a good point when you said, you know, we have to come back online. I mean, how long, you know, you don't want to come back too soon. If you come back too soon, you can unnecessarily subject a lot of people to COVID and the death rate goes up. And that's a tragic, horrible thing to be thinking about. On the other hand, there's some optimal point when you need to open the economy. Now, I hate using that word when I'm talking about human lives, but if you think about it this way, if if we keep it offline for too long, you end up with a depression. We're already in a recession, but you end up with a depression. There are already food lines out in, in, in the United States. I mean, it's just shocking to see. But if we end up with a depression and people can't feed their families, crime rates go up, drug use goes up, a depression and suicide happens. And it's really horrible to think about that. But there is that kind of optimal weird line where a depression ends up taking more lives than even COVID. Where So how do you make that horrible lose-lose type of decision and choice when you're talking about people's lives? And I think Trump hasn't been able to explain that very well when he kind of just says, we need to open up the economy. You know, there's a part of that comment where he's right And I don't know where the line is and where that optimal point is where depression ends up being even worse. Very, very tricky. I knew when we, you know, we decided we were going to do this podcast that that it would be the perspective that really matters. I think the reality is that is that our healthcare officials are telling us we're in for a much longer ordeal than we imagined. But the knock-on effects of that, notwithstanding the tragedy of it, at the knock-on effects are 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 so unknown. We're still in the early stages. Every day brings new measures. Just going to the grocery store. Uh, for example, you know, every every visit to the grocery store uh, was also an introduction to new measures at the grocery store. It's really, truly unprecedented. Real world when there's fear in going to the grocery store. And I have some older neighbors who I know are terrified of, of going to the, to the, to the, I'm, uh, and so I go for them and I wear gloves and, you know, and I got to admit, it scares me a little bit to go. Um, where it's just not a kind of a fun experience. But on the on the upside, I think, you know, it shows how people are coming together and neighbors are checking on neighbors and there's a good side to that. Um, you know, I talk plenty of, 
about the, the bad side of it from a social and geopolitical aspect, but um, from a very, very local level, you know, there's camaraderie in it. And hey, we're all this together. And you see those stories about, you know, what cheering going on for healthcare workers and the singing of the national anthem in those apartment buildings close to each other. And, and you know, those are the sides that show the resilience and, and great aspects of uh, human nature, you know, and that's, you know, again, flatten the curve is about not just overwhelming hospitals, but you know, hoping that the healthcare workers, we have enough of them to take care of us when we're there. And so that's why not giving them the right equipment, to, you know, if they're short is, is unacceptable. And hopefully they get what they need when they need them. Do you have any, uh, any remarks that you'd want to make in conclusion to our discussion? I would just tell people a couple things. There, there are ways to, you know, we, we got lulled into a complacent world for a while. And now that we're at home, we did. it's a good time for self-reflection. And self-reflection means a lot of things. Um, how you live your life, how you interact with your children, what you talk to your children about. From a professional point of view as well, I think if you're a financial planner, for your own personal investments. I think people shouldn't be fooled into the little sound bites and talking, talking about always buying the dip and buy, 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 V-shape recovery, hey, let's get in. It's really back to prudent being a fiduciary and knowing the risk that you're taking and the returns you're trying to seek. And I would be like, stop worrying about what the market's doing. Every single person, whether you're a pension fund or a person, every person has an investment goal that may be a little different. Now, pension, it's to meet their liabilities. For a person, it might be to pay for their kids' college, whatever it may be. And to be chasing benchmarks and peers or throwing together a 60-40 portfolio, um, trying to beat some poorly ill-conceived constructed benchmark is, to me, um, really lacks insight. It, it, it's, it's reckless. You're not being a fiduciary that I think people should go back to goal-based investing. What am I trying to achieve? Where is the market? And how can I go into the marketplace to achieve my long-term goal? And if that is really how you can be a little more unconventional, is you have a backdrop upon which you're defining what your own goals are as to worrying about fear of missing the upside or fear of underperforming a benchmark. It gives you a basis upon which to judge. And it shouldn't be based on a quarter. If you want to be a long-term investor, then really be it. Your goal is probably then going to be long-term. And what is your ability to achieve that in the long-term? So stop measuring your performance based on quarter, quarterly things. It's really time to, I think, take the time that we have to do lots of, of, of reevaluation and, and reassessment. Guy, it's been a sincere pleasure talking to you today. Uh, as always, as, as expected, as I mentioned at the very beginning, you've become a, a source of revealing insight. That's not just the run-of-the-mill talk. I think you've always done a terrific work of pulling back the curtain and revealing what's going on behind the scenes. And for that, I thank you. Pierre, I, I can't thank you enough for those kind words. They, uh, they, they really mean a lot. And one of the reasons I wanted to do the podcast as well is I think advisor analysts and you and the work and the service that you provide in wanting to have a discussion, a broader discussion, 
is a really, really important service that you provide for people. So I commend you and your company and the work you're doing. Thank you so much.